We'll hear argument next in case 06-1413, Mead West Vaco versus the Illinois Department of Revenue. Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The ruling of the Illinois Appellate Court in this case radically expanded the Court's operational function test. The state tax at issue violates the principles of constitutional limitations on state taxing authority for at least two reasons. First, the factors relied on by the appellate court here for functional for operational function would mean that ownership of an investment would meet that standard. But that's what this court rejected in Allied Signal. A state does not have the authority to reach out to tax all investments owned by a company that does business in the state. The operational function demands more. It Can applies. You explain to me, Ms. Brinkman. Uh, we talk about an asset and investment. This was one company. This, it, it's strange to talk about unitary basis or investment. This is a division of one company. And we're talking about a sale of assets, not the sale of stock of a subsidiary. So what more is there than this is one company? It sells some of its assets. Well, Your Honor, the fact that it's a division does not mean that it meets either the operational function test or the unitary business tax. A long line of cases from this Court tell us that. Um, it, do we have any cases, do we have any decisions that go against the state taxing authority that involve divisions as opposed to subsidiaries? No, but the Exxon case involved divisions, and um, it went in favor of the state taxing authority, but the Court applied a straightforward unitary business analysis to that. And, Your Honor, this dates back to the Adams Express case of 1897. The Court in that case said it's not ownership. It's about the use. It's the unitariness of use, not of ownership. Mobile followed on that. Mobile talked about the fact that it's not the the corporate form that matters. It pointed out that that could have little to do with the underlying um, determination of apportionment, which depends upon whether it's a discrete business enterprise. And then following on the heels of that analysis in Mobile, the Court applied it to the Exxon case that involved divisions. That was a vertically, vertically integrated corporation. It's very different from the facts of this case, and it reached a different result. Moreover, the Woolworth case involved um, subsidiaries. Three out of the four of them were 100 percent fully Can owned. I, I go back to sort of a fundamental question I haven't quite sure I know the answer to. Supposing we don't have corporations here, but an individual resident in New York owned this whole business, and, and a big punch of it was activities in Illinois, and he sold the business. Would Illinois have the authority to impose any tax on that transaction? If it was a capital gain, Your Honor, on the sale of investment, the Court's longstanding cases teach that the, it is the um, domicile that taxes that commercial no, I'm, gain. I'm assuming it's not the domicile. The, the owner lives in New York. The business is all over the country, but it does millions of dollars of business in Illinois, and they sell the whole business. That, would the owner be subject to any tax of any kind in Illinois on that transaction? Could it constitutionally be subject to any tax? If there was um, the domiciliary state, generally, is the state which has the authority to tax an income I'm on a it's capital not the gain. Domiciliary state. But then, what the court explained in Mobile, for example, if it is under the unitary business principle, 
than the um, state you in which — You get an answer without reference to cases. Do you think it could — Illinois would have the authority to impose a tax on that transaction? If the um, — there was sufficient nexus to the company doing — There are millions of dollars of business in Illinois. That's my assumption. Yes, they would be able to tax the um, ongoing business and activity in oh, the sale of the business. No. They tax the sale of the business. I, I have, I have the, the, the sale of the business would be to the domicile of the seller. You, they would be you're able to. That only the domicile can impose a tax. Yes, unless, as the court recognized in Mobile, there is this unitary business exception, because the state's ability to tax begins at the starting point at the territorial limitations of the state. But if and the court has correct, instead of a business, they could transact, take tax that transaction, I you, suppose. You can't have a unitary business of a person who is a unitary business. I mean, a person can't be unitary with Exxon. I mean, when you speak of a unitary business, you're talking about a corporation which, you know, is unitary with another corporation. And that's the area — Once you put it into a personal uh, — a taxation scheme, it seems to me the whole unitary business uh, notion uh, has, has no application at all. Well, it, I agree with you, Your Honor, but it does come back to the taxing of the, the right of the domicile state to tax what, what on is, sale. What does the domicile state hit? We have Ohio. But you say as a matter of constitutional law, not state tax policy, matter of constitutional law, the only state that has authority to tax the capital gain is Ohio. That's right, Your Honor. Unless what does, does Ohio — would Ohio give credit for the tax that it, its sister state thinks is due? What, what is, in fact, Ohio's tax law in this respect? Does Ohio give credit to taxes paid by other states? Ohio would allocate the entire gain as a um, capital gain on an intangible um, that was sold in the state of Ohio. That would be allocated in its entirety, Illinois. Now, what the Court has recognized is that default principle sometimes gives way when that gain has had enough connection to business activity in another jurisdiction. That's where these issues arise because there are states taxing multi-state activities. I'm not in sure I, I have an answer to a very simple question. If Illinois claimed the tax, would Ohio give credit for the tax paid in Illinois? No, not if Ohio had the constitutional right to allocate that tax but, to Ohio. As we know what, uh, what Ohio does in these situations. Yes, it allocates it to the state of Ohio. The only exception for that would be in a situation not the facts here, but if that capital gain either um, served an operational function to the business activities that were conducted in another state, then that state would have a right to apportion it and tax its portion of that or if the operational function applied. And that is because the activity now has transformed from just a capital gain that's connected to the domiciliary state of the seller to a business income because it is part of this unitary business. That's why the other state has a right to apportion what has That's Ohio, not uh, the situation. What has Ohio done up to this point with respect to this transaction? Um, under Ohio's laws, this would be allocated to that state. To Ohio? Yes. 
because it's a capital gain on a sale of an investment. And this Court — Ms. Brinkman, you begin your your brief by saying this is a a paper company that happens to own a data processing company. Why couldn't you equally say this is a data processing company that happens to own a paper company? No, Your Honor. This has been a uh, paper company since 1846. Well, data in, in LexisNexis has been a data processing company since whenever. But under the um, court's unitary — It's not the oldest. Whichever is oldest isn't the one that gets to be regarded as the dominant partner, is it? No, but when you do the analysis, you're looking at the taxpayer, which is Mead Corporation, and it clearly has a unique — Is General General Electric a light bulb company or, since it owns NBC, a a media company? I would have to know many more facts in order to to answer that question, Your Honor, but I I can — and I don't — Why isn't the answer both? Why isn't the answer both? Just as here, it is both a paper office supply company and uh, a LexisNexis electronic data company. It's an analytical construct that we're doing here. We're looking at the taxpayer who's being taxed, the Mead Corporation. So you look at its business that's being conducted in (coughs) Illinois. They have a unitary paper company that's vertically integrated, that's doing business activities in Illinois. Well, that's because they sell paper in Illinois? Yes, and well, Lexus sells data services in Illinois too. Yes, but when you're looking at, and for both purposes, Your Honor, for state tax on the operating income of both of those businesses, Illinois does have a right to apportion those taxes, and those taxes were paid without objection by both of those businesses. We're talking about a tax on a different event, on a capital gain, on a sale. Of the business in but Ohio. why doesn't I mean you just said as I understand it, Illinois has the right to tax Lexus on their business activities in Illinois. Uh, Illinois would argue well, the reason it has a capital gain is partly because they were doing business in Illinois, and so we should be entitled to part of that capital gain. Honor, Almost, I mean, it seems to me it would be pretty easy if they get to tax two percent of Lexus's business. Well, then maybe they should get two percent of the capital gain when it's sold. Your Honor, that's tax two percent. Um, that is a belated argument that the State of Illinois has raised in this Court. It did not present an argument to the Illinois Appellate Court based on LexisNexis's connection to Illinois. It raises a host of jurisdictional, procedural, and substantive bars. Under the rules of Illinois, as we point out in our reply brief, that argument is waived. This comes to the Court from a State Court, not a Federal Court of Appeals. Because of that waiver, it's an independent and adequate State ground. Moreover, that argument wasn't raised in the brief in opposition uh, either. Uh, they're, they're raising it in, in support of the judgment. So if it's novel, but it supports the judgment, then at least shouldn't the Illinois courts have a chance to look at it and say, oh, that's what we really meant. We just got explained it the wrong way. Well, that would certainly be a matter for the Illinois court rather than for this court, Your Honor. But in addition, I think any disposition on the merits of that issue would be a ruling by this court that would be trumping that independent and adequate state ground waiver. Moreover, this um, argument wasn't raised in the brief in opposition either. And the court's precedent, of course, and practice would not be addressed that. Particularly in this case, it denied notice to the amici who would be um, affected by this argument. But turning to the substance of it. And I I think this is part of the substance. 
I thought that uh, as part of one of your answers, you said that Ohio is free to allocate part of this capital gains tax to Illinois. Did did I hear you say Because I I don't understand that. No, Your Honor, I'm sorry. I, I apologize if I misspoke. Ohio would allocate, mean take the entire gain for itself as the domicile state of the seller of the investment. In other factual scenarios, if it turns out that that um, asset actually was not an investment and, in fact, had enough connection to the business activities in Illinois because it was really uh, the, the supplier of the raw materials. So the two examples that the Court has given as operational functions is the interest on the bank account, which is the working capital, or the, um, the uh, futures hedging against the uh, raw material of corn. Well, isn't this kind of like futures hedging? I mean, you've got a paper company, and then you've got uh, something that is sort of the paperless aspect, and they can look at it and say, well, we're kind of hedging our paper business by investing heavily in something that's supposedly going to take away the need for paper. No, Your Honor. Under the operational function test, it has to be a much closer nexus to the operating, the operations of the paper company. And short of that operational function exemption, or if it were part of the unitary business, the domiciliary state would allocate. If I could turn to — Are you saying this is a passive investment? Yes, Your Honor. How can you call it a passive investment? Uh, Not only when there was, uh, I think, undisputedly, uh, as, as, as much uh, interest in activity in um, Nexus's business planning uh, by the Mead people. But to my mind, even more importantly, uh, when in fact Mead, I think a couple of times, merged with, with Nexus, Alexis, uh, when that provided a tax advantage by, by giving them um, loss carry forwards that reduced their taxes. Why isn't it fair to, to say, under the operational function test, uh, that if, uh, if the company is, is — if, if Nexus is, is mergeable with Mead when it produces a tax advantage uh, and, and is certainly, in a very operational sense, functional then, because it's saving them a lot of money, uh, and that's, that has nothing to do with passive investment, if it's usable uh, in, in a merger scenario there, uh, it ought, when the, when the tide turns, uh, be, uh, be regarded as, as close enough in operational function uh, to, to be taxable when, when the gain comes in. Your Honor, that, Your Honor, that's contrary to the Court's longstanding recognition that something that enriches the taxpayer is not necessarily part of the unitary business or operational function. That's that's right. But weren't the enrichment cases, cases in which income was being uh, generated by an investment? Uh, The investor, of course, was the the taxpayer company, uh, and it simply reaped the, the benefits of a profitable investment. That's something very different from merging corporations, then unmerging them, and then merging them again, uh, to provide not merely enrichment, but great tax savings. Uh, and if they are operationally close enough to produce great tax savings, why shouldn't they be treated as operationally close enough uh, when, in fact, uh, they, they produce a capital gain? Because that isn't the operational connection that justifies a state. The gain alone certainly is not. Uh, if, if they had absolutely done nothing uh, but make their investment uh, and wait to, to see whether the ship came in, uh, I would understand your argument. 
But between the investment and the return of the ship, uh, they were merging these corporations back and forth for, for their, per, for, for Meade's, uh, tax advantage. And that seems to me to take it out, take the facts of this case out of the, uh, sort of the, the, the paradigm of the, the operation or the non-operational function cases. Yeah, I think not if we, we look at Allied Signal, we look at Woolworth, and we look at Osarco. Allied Signal was the sale of an investment. And getting back to the point about the argument we believe was waived about the um, connection with LexisNexis to Illinois, those were the same facts in Allied Signal. The investment there it was a sale, sale of stock in that case, wasn't it? Yes. It was a sale of a subsidiary. And here we have a sale of assets of one company. But in, That's in a, why it's so hard for me to see this as what are we talking about, unitary or not? There is only one company. It's me. In, in Allied Signal, the um, investment there was also doing business within the state. In the Exxon case, there were divisions to which this Court applied the entire unitary business principle, because what the Court has said repeatedly in Mobile and Exxon and all these cases, it's not the corporate form. It is whether there's a discrete business enterprise. And Osarco speaks to this. You told me that there was no case that the tax taxing authority lost that involved divisions of a single company and sale of assets rather than the sale of stock. That's correct. We have um, four or five cases here. One of them does involve divisions, Exxon, but in that case it was a vertically integrated corporation and the state prevailed in that case. But it did not change the analysis that applied. But we're talking about what due process permits states to do. And you're asking us to declare a restriction that, as far as I know, has never been declared in any case. It has, Your Honor. It goes back to principles that ownership do not, does not determine simply because there is a business operating in the state. The state does not have the right to tax every investment that's owned by that. That dates back to 1897. It's not just that it's an investment. It's not just that it's holding on to shares in another company. It's both of these are ongoing businesses, LexisNexis and Mead, and they're both generating income, and all along, Illinois has been taxing the income of both of them, right? Yes, the operating income within the state's apportioned. But if you look to the business activity of the taxpayer Mead operating in Illinois, it is that nexus on which Illinois is claiming that they have a right to tax here. And if we look at the Woolworth case, for example, I think that is also instructive. Those were um, four subsidiaries. Three of them were 100 percent wholly owned. And the court expressly said, we recognize they're wholly owned subsidiaries. These could be integrated divisions. And they said that is not significant if they are independent, different business enterprises. They couldn't have weren't those foreign corporations? Yes, Your Honor. So so running them as, as a single company would have been a little harder. Well, no. In, in fact, um, there were also some foreign subsidiaries, I, I believe, involved in the um, uh, Asarco case, for example, Your Honor, and the same analysis applied, you know, whether it was vertically integrated and whether or not met the unitary business test goes back to three core principles. And this Court has said at least four, if not five times, that the unitary business principle is the linchpin of apportionment. 
That is whether or not there is um, functional well, well, integration. Don't, sorry, I, I don't mean to cut off your argument, but don't, don't we start with the assumption that this is not a unitary business? Wasn't that the finding of the trial court, which was not disturbed on appeal? That's right, Your okay. Honor. That's right. I, I, say it if you want, but I wanted yeah, to make There's sure no I'm vertical integration. There's no sharing of centralized management. There's no economies of scale. We think this is unassailable okay. on the stipulated record in this case. Am I thinking about that part correctly? I, I found this difficult. I go back to the railroad. That seems the mm-hmm. easiest case. You have a railroad in 50 states, and Illinois finds it very hard to evaluate its, evaluate, evaluate its railroad property in Illinois because really the value of that depends on service everywhere. So the Court says that's a unitary principle. And really what you're supposed to look at is whether, when you look at this supposedly separate part of the business, does that separate part of the business contribute to the whole thing? So that if you were, in fact, trying to say what is Illinois doing without considering that separate part, it would be tough to do. I mean, that's the underlying theme. Wait, wait, if that's so, there is no second test. I mean, I can't do There's language. But really, what people have done is they've said, we are here in a special situation because we have an interest in another company. And that's a special kind of part of our business. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the business. And then the argument is, no, it does have something to do with the rest of the business. And if it does, like it provides you with working capital, it's just like the railroad track in California vis-a-vis Illinois. It's contributing it to doesn't, the business. It doesn't. So now, if that's right, then it's the form of analysis rather than the result that's wrong in the court below because they start talking about two separate tests, and, and then people argue whether the second should swallow up the first, and at that point I get totally lost. It's fairly long, but I'd appreciate your evaluating what I've just said. Well, Your Honor, there's, uh, there, on this record, it's, um, there's no question that the LexisNexis cannot meet the unitary business test. Yes, there is, Ms. Brickman. The, the Illinois Appellate Court never got to that question. Illinois argued all along, this is a unitary business. The only one who said it wasn't was this trial court. And the Illinois Intermediate Appellate Court says, well, you know, we don't have to deal with that because if you use the other label, operational function, that comes out all right, too. But this argument was certainly the number one argument that Illinois was making. It lost only in the trial court on, on it. And the appellate court said, we don't have to get to it. So I think your answer to Justice Souter really wasn't accurate, because it isn't. Our position is on the record here, Your Honor, the stipulate record, that it's unassailable. But we All do we know is that a trial judge said that was so. Right, and, and that's our position, obviously, on the record, Your Honor. But we agree this was properly raised in the um, appellate court, as opposed to the other um, argument, which was not. And this also was mentioned in the brief in opposition, as opposed to the other argument, which was not. So we do think the court could reach this um, argument. And we uh, maintain that on this record, the linchpin of apportionment, giving the right of a state, and this is a right to extend beyond its territory. The court has already let it go beyond its territory to get to something outside the state if it's part of the unitary business, the railroad case, the express case. And in that situation, there are three factors, none of which can be met on this record. There was no shared centralized management, none. There was no integrative functions, none. And there were no economies of stale. 
LexisNexis did not even get a discount on any paper they bought from me. They were, you know, minor uh, customers Maybe of each when other. we're talking about due process and commerce clause limitations on what states can tax, we ought to ask ourselves, is those three, is that it? We're trying to measure, is there a sufficient relationship between LexisNexis, me, and the state of Illinois to make it fair? for them to tax. And you say, oh, yeah, each year when they're making income, when they're going concerns, Illinois can get a piece of it. But when the assets are sold, assets that would have generated income for Illinois year after year, but it, when, the, when those assets are sold, Illinois can get nothing to represent, to substitute for that stream of income that it would have Gotten. No, it will continue to get income tax on an apportioned basis From before me, but, and but after. LexisNexis is gone. Well, LexisNexis continues to operate. It's now owned by Reed Elsevier, so it would continue to pay an apportioned income tax. It's a different event here, Your Honor. It is the sale of an investment that occurred in Ohio. And as the domicile state, Ohio has provided benefits to the corporate headquarters well, and management. Suppose it had been Delaware. And there was nothing there in Delaware except it was a Delaware corporation. That's not the commercial domicile, Your Honor. There is a distinction in um, all of these cases between the state of incorporation and the commercial domicile. The commercial domicile. Uh, one thing that concerns me is how this will complicate the process. I think with respect to an ordinary income, the states work this out and they figure we get 5 percent because we have 5 percent of the presence or business, whatever. Now they're going to have that and they're going to have an overlay on that. They're going to say, well, it's 5 percent, but, you know, we sold this asset that doesn't have any connection to Illinois, and that's part of the income we've got, so you don't get quite 5 percent of all. And another state, Illinois is going to come back and say, well, yeah, but you sold this other one, and as to that one, you've got sufficient connection with Illinois. It seems to me it's going to be impossible to sort this out. Your Honor, this has been going on since at least 1992 in the Allied Signal case. The um, Lower courts, the state courts, except for the court in this case, have been able to apply that easily. In order to take the expansive view of Illinois here, you would be undermining Allied Signal, which had the same facts as in this case, not to mention Asarco, Woolworth. And I, I would just say before I could reserve the remainder of my time, Allied Signal was a case in which this court was faced with new arguments raised by the states at argument you went back and had re-supplemental briefing and re-argument and questioned in your questions to those parties whether or not a Sarko and Woolworth should be revisited and overruled. So the Allied Signal case took into account all of these concerns and came back with a ringing affirmation of the linchpin of an apportionability um, for state taxation being the unitary business test I, with I, the operational I, function yeah. aspect. I don't like to intrude on the, the, the white light, but if I could just ask, ask, ask one question. Uh, if the unitary tax uh, argument has been preserved and, and, and is met, and if there's a finding that they're unitary, does Illinois have the right to tax the sale? Assume it's unitary. Can, can Illinois then, in your view, uh, have a, a part of, a tax part of the gain on the sale? Yes, if it were a unitary business, we think there's no way this record could meet the standards compared to the Woolworth, Asarco. In all of those cases, they were um, much closer. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Barrow? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
Illinois is not attempting to tax income earned outside its borders. To the contrary, the income it seeks to tax here is income earned by Mead on its electronic publishing business, Lexus, which conducted substantial business in Illinois. Mead paid taxes on the income that its electronic pub- publishing business earned, yet it now contends that the Constitution bars it from taxing any of the gain that it realized on the sale of Lexus, even though Illinois undeniably contributed. No, if, if, if you do not proceed on the unitary business theory, let's take, let's take that off, off the sure. table. It seems to me that Lexus's presence uh, in Illinois is quite irrelevant. Uh, no, Your Honor. It's uh, it, it seems to me that you can either, that under your theory, you could uh, you, you could tax uh, the sale even if Lexus were not in Illinois at all, just because Mead is. If if this if they were unitary, yes, then Lexus's presence in Illinois would be irrelevant to this case. If they if they met the unitary business doctrine. No, no, that's not the question. I I thought that the my I agree with I have the same question Justice Kennedy has. Suppose that I'm a Massachusetts company that sells tables, and I sell some tables in Illinois. And one day I take some of the money and I buy an iron mine in New Mexico. And then I sell the iron mine, and Illinois, not Massachusetts, wants to impose a tax. And suppose there's no connection whatsoever between the iron mine and anything else but for four, which are the four listed on page 13A. One, that. I have contributed capital support to the iron mine. Two, I approve the major capital expenditures of the iron mine, sitting in my office in Massachusetts. Three, sometimes, and this is a tougher one, I call the iron mine a division of my table company. And four, I sometimes retain tax benefits and control over the extra cash of the iron mine, but I'm not using it in my day-to-day work. Now, are those four things alone sufficient for Illinois to tax the sale of my iron mine? That, it seems to me, is the way they presented it. Maybe it is a unitary business, really, but I guess we'd have to send it back for that. Um, under, under those bare facts, probably that would be not a sufficient connection. All right, then why isn't that the end but of this case? That's what they said it was. Uh, that's what they said, perhaps wrongly, that, that this isn't a unitary business, and therefore we're left with those four facts, and why not send it back and say, you haven't reached the unitary business question? Go reach it. Because you're and if I can just add on to that, to that same question, uh, if you're going to have the, uh, the, the unitary tax theory, uh, that's, that, that, that's very helpful. Uh, but if we take the unitary tax theory off the table, it seems to me that you're confusing the law uh, by having some, some midway test. I don't know what your theory is. That's, and really, this is part of Justice Breyer's question. But there's, there's a two-part answer to that question, those questions, Your Honor. First, there's a second avenue of tax, state taxation that's been well-recognized by this Court for at least 80 years, which is that if a business conducts business in a state, a state has a tax, a, a, has the right to tax a share of that business. And that's all Illinois did it here. When it, in apportioning the income in this case, it apportioned the income only based on Lexis's in-state Illinois presence. So, so under that avenue alone, the tax is constitutional. The second, uh, the, there, the, the but, but Meade didn't receive uh, the, 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 pardon me, 
Lexus didn't receive the money for the sale. Mead did. Right. It Lexus, again. Mead's presence or non-presence is simply irrelevant to what happened here, absent a unitary theory. No, Your Honor. Mead received the tax, the, the gain from the sale because Lexus was a division of Mead. And the only tax paying, the only, there is no, there was no legal entity known as Lexus at the time that Lexus was sold. It was assets, it was assets owned by the Mead Corporation. Now, Mead received the benefit, the gain on the sale because Mead was the only tax paying entity in this case. So Mead was conducting a business in Illinois called Lexus, and therefore Illinois could tax at least. Do, do you think that if there had been a separate corporation, uh, and this, and Lexus was a subsidiary corporation, and the subsidiary would, uh, it was sold, that, again, absent no. a finding of unitary, Illinois then could have had a tax? Yes, Illinois could have taxed based on the, the, the amount. Right. So, so then, so then, so then the, the, the asset stock doesn't make any difference. But the, but the, but the point, Your Honor, is that Lexus had a, had a presence in Illinois. It was conducting business on Illinois. That alone gave Illinois the power to tax a share of the income on uh, that gets back to Justice Stevens' initial hypothetical. If you live in New York and you have an investment of a company that does a lot of business uh, in Illinois, and you, a New York resident individual, sell that stock, uh, under your theory, Illinois could tax it. No. Illinois can't tax that state because there's no relationship. There has to be uh, some relationship, you know, between Illinois and the taxpaying activity and the taxpayer. In Justice Breyer's hypothetical, there was none. But there's a — but let me, if I can address that prong of the analysis also — here, there was a much closer connection between Lexus and Mead than simply that of a passive investment. It wasn't just that uh, Mead helped Lexus buy, make capital acquisitions. They were involved in, in the actual uh, acquisitions themselves, in purchasing and contracting to make those acquisitions. Uh, Mead was involved in um, uh, many of the um, — in, in — uh, Controlling lots of, lots of their, their capital investment, it uh, and it um, was also involved in manipulating excess ca- in their excess cash. And there's a whole there was a host of facts that, that supported a closer relationship between Mead and Lexus than simply that of passive investment. So, whether even if you're looking at it from the operational function point of view, um, there was there was a. A, a, a sufficient connection between Lexus and me beyond that of Ju- Justice Breyer's hypothetical. If, you're, if you traded places with Ohio, uh, what, how would you have treated this transaction under your tax laws? Under our tax laws, say that it, that uh, Meade was uh, uh, domiciled in Illinois, but LexisNexis uh, operated in Ohio. Would you have just taken? Would you have allocated, or would you have? Uh, claimed that the right to tax the entire I, this, capital. This, this would have prob- I think, Your Honor, I, I believe this would have been apportioned as business in- income under Illinois law. Uh, you know what? Did you know what Ohio did, Ms. I, I, I don't know what Ohio did. They've, uh, Mead has never cited anything in the record to support uh, the contention that was allocated all to Ohio. Uh, my understanding of Ohio law at the time is that they, they have the same business income test basically, that Illinois does. Well, what would you say? I mean, they, we, we talk about apportioning income and allocating income, allocating to the commercial headquarters. Uh, what in an enterprise like this would you say is allocated to the 
commercial headquarters as opposed to being a portion among all the states? Different states have different rules, Your Honor, and these are state law rules, not constitutional rules, about allocation and, and apportionment. Some states that will allocate an intangible capital gain like this to their, to their home domicile state. Other states will apportion it based on the share of income that is done in the state. Um, I, again, I don't know what Ohio did, but the point is that's a rule of — that's a state law rule of choice, not a rule of, of a constitutional rule. I think this Court has been pretty clear in the mobile oil case that um, — these, those, that does, doesn't have a constitutional significance, that when a state, a domicile state and a state where a, a source, which is the source of income, when those conflict, in fact, this Court has signaled that the apportionment is the default rule and that the, 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 uh, the source state actually would, would have, the source state would win that, that confrontation. Mr. Barrett, I just want to go back to an earlier answer to see how far you would go with, with a position that you took. Assume uh, that Exclusive of, of Nexus, Mead is the same kind of unitary corporation it is uh, uh, un, under, under everybody's understanding now. Assume also, uh, as you suggested in a hypo, that, uh, that Lexus was doing business in Illinois so that at least a, a, a portion of its own activity could be taxed in Illinois. And assume, third, uh, that the relationship between Mead and Lexus is simply one of passive investment. Um, Mead simply bought a lot of stock at a, maybe 100 percent of the stock at the right time, and otherwise it's kept hands off. Uh, and at, at this point, uh, Mead now, now sells. Uh, on, on your theory, uh, would, uh, would, would uh, the state of Illinois uh, be able to tax a portion of the capital gain? Yes, they would, Your Honor, but they, they would be limited in how much of that capital gain they could apportion. They would apportion it limited to the amount of income that arose in Illinois. And that's what the auditor did in this case. Well, but that would be, in effect, the portion of the nexus business, total business that took place in Illinois, total in sales, total payroll, however you do it. Right. And then that would be put, put but that would be put into okay, the — Okay. But the, 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 the only point I wanted to get clear on to understand your position is uh, that purely passive investment would be enough to trigger your theory. Yes, it would. Okay. It, it is, Your Honor. Counsel, uh, why isn't uh, your friend correct that you've waived any argument based on the presence of Lexus in Illinois? Your Honor, uh, two reasons. For, under the, they've, they've cited basically uh, two basis grounds for waiver, one under Illinois law and under this Court's rules. The, but they, they misstate Illinois law in, in the, on the waiver regard. The cases and rules they cite to stand for the simple proposition that a point not waived raised in a brief before a particular court can't be raised on oral argument. But what the Illinois Supreme Court has been clear on otherwise is that an argument, even if it's not raised in the appellate court, as long as it's raised in the trial court in support of a judgment, may be raised in a reviewing court on further review. I can provide a couple of sites. I'm not following your argument because I thought that the, the argument that this was a unitary enterprise was made in the Illinois appellate court. And the appellate court recognized that it was made and said, we're not going to reach it because we have this operational function test. Yes, Your Honor, that's, that's correct. Well, but that's very different from your current argument, which you emphasize that whether they're unitary or not, LexisNexis was in Illinois. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. So. Now, as to that argument, we're, at least I am very reluctant to overturn a state court uh, on an argument that they didn't have an opportunity to consider. And 
whether it's technically waived because you raised in the trial court or not, it certainly was not an argument you made to the Illinois appellate courts. That's correct, Your Honor. And um, but I think uh, as this court set forth in Caterpillar versus Lewis, uh, it, it is a predicate to the intelligent resolution of this case. Well, it wasn't an Allied Signal. In Allied Signal, the asset that was sold was in New Jersey, and that was totally irrelevant to how we treated the. The issue in that case, certainly, Your Honor. But uh, New Jersey was taking a very different position of that case. They were making a much broader argument than we're making here. They were trying to overturn the entire unitary doctrine, and so if they made it, they may have chosen not to make that argument. It may very well have been that case that uh, Sarko's apportionment factors in that case were so minimal that it wasn't worth them making that argument. For, but for whatever reason, they weren't interested in taxing based on the source alone. Um, but here, as the facts show, Illinois did actually tax Lexus or the, the gain on Lexus pursuant to Lexus's in-state apportionment factors. May I ask this question? Just shows my ignorance. But if, if the unitary business approach to taxation was not applied in this case, how did you compute the amount of the tax? It was computed. What the what the uh, department did in this case is it uh, it took the, the 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 entire gain that put that went into meets. Apportionable yeah. tax base, but then it, what it, in order to find the, the Lex, Illinois Lexus share of the gain, he looked at the uh, Illinois, Lexus's Illinois sales and Illinois Lexus's Illinois payroll and pulled that ma- amount out, which was about four percent of the gain, and put that into uh, needs. So he used a different rate. formula from the normal three-factor formula to compute the tax. Right, he used a, a different formula. He used a two-factor formula, but it was just related to Meads sales, not to. But it seems I'm sorry, Lexus those, those factors are wholly irrelevant to the fact of sale. It's just whimsical. Well, it's nothing to do with the sale. No, the reason we use apportionment in other cases, if it, Justice Breyer's railroad example, there's no other way to tell, and so forth. But but here the presence of Lexus in Illinois is wholly accidental with reference uh, to what went on in the sale. No, Your Honor, it, it, it wasn't. I mean, the Lexus did considerable business in Illinois, and the auditor attempt, was isolating Illinois' business and attempting to value, accurately value the amount of gain that should be attributable to Meade based on Lexus's Illinois presence. Well, that's why it's even more dramatic to me that you didn't raise the argument based on the Lexus connection to Illinois. That's the basis on which your auditor is claiming these taxes, and yet you don't even raise it before the Illinois Appellate Court as a ground for, for being able to reach the Lexus nexus income. Well, Your Honor, the, the focus of the arguments, both in the trial court and, the, and actually in the appellate court, were on, this, and on whether the state law test had been met at the time. And um, when it went up on appeal, though, we, had, we prevailed in the appellate court based on an, an operational, or I'm sorry, the trial court based on the court's finding that the operational function had been met. Um, that's how the appellant framed the issue. And the case sort of turned on really st- Illinois state law's interpretation of allied signal. Um, but, you know, at, at this point, the the facts in the law are, are clear, and a decision in the Illinois courts they did argue that as a matter of federal constitutional law, the tax is impermissible, didn't they? Correct. Yes, yes, they did. And at, the, at this point, Your Honor, I mean to render a decision that doesn't take into account the facts of the case, the economic reality that this occurred in would would be artificial. Oh, we couldn't do anything more if we said you haven't waived it. We couldn't do anything more than send it back. We don't. You're telling us Lexus has this presence in Illinois, but we, I mean, we have nothing in the record about that. It's, there's, yes, it is in the record. The auditors, I mean, the, the stipulation itself um, 
shows that Lexis was in Illinois. And the uh, Illinois appellate court made a finding that the presence of Lexis, Lexis's needs tax and nexus was, with Illinois, was undisputed. So the Illinois appellate court recognized that Lexis had a, a taxing, a, a adequate taxing connection with Illinois. Where, where is that? That is, uh, uh, I don't have the page site uh, handy, Your Honor, but the, the appellate court uh, didn't, did make a finding that, the, that it was undisputed that the I, I just oh, yeah. usually appellate courts don't make findings. That's why. Well, they did make. I'm sorry. Made a statement that the, the, the was there any kind of stipulation between the parties to say what each Lexis Nexus was doing in Illinois, what Mead was doing in yeah. Illinois. There was a there was a, a long stipulation, yes, Your Honor, and plus there was a lot of exhibits attached to the stipulation, which were which are reflected in, in our briefs that um, that discussed in. in in detail, what Mead and Lexis were both doing, at least in their relationship to each other. But let me ask you about the theory that the, both the trial court and the intermediate appellate court went on this operational function test, which has been brought up in a few of our cases, but I don't know any that was decided. Did we ever have any case that turned on? Uh, the operational function test to hold for the state taxing authority? No, Your Honor, but in Allied Signal, there was examples were given of Yeah, yeah but it, one of the problems with applying it, as you urge here, is that that would just override. Why would anyone go to the trouble of making a case under the so-called unitary business Test because the operational function test would be much easier to meet. So, I, I guess on that point, I would disagree with you a bit, Your Honor. I think they're very, they're very they're different tests that look to different relationships. So one does while well, the same facts can support them in instances. Um, you can it can have situations where a business is unitary but not operational, or, or I'm sorry, an asset is operational but isn't necessarily what um, what um, That's, what could it be? Well, it is. I, as I read this, I thought, well, there is no separate test. It's just there's a certain situation that comes up fairly commonly where someone claims that an asset of a company uh, was really quite separate, and therefore when they get income from it uh, or they sell it, it has nothing to do with my business. And the answer is, well, it did have something to do with your business. You use the working capital and so forth. In which case, it's part of the business. I, so how, how, how is it? How is it different from I, that? I, I agree, Your Honor. For, well, if you agree with that, I mean, do you really agree? Because if you agree with that, there's no such separate test. This court was wrong to consider it separately, the lower court, and they should have reached the question they didn't reach, which was: Is this whole thing one single business, which is normally called the unitary business test? Your Honor, on that point, I, will, I disagree. Good, with you. Right. I think. The, there is, I mean, they're both ways of reaching the overall unitary principle is whether you can show the intangible flow of asset, of value between a company. I can give you an example, say, of a company that would be unitary but where the operational function analysis wouldn't be applied is a container corp type fact pattern where you have a domestic, a domestic parent providing value out to the foreign subsidiaries, but there's nothing sort of flowing back to the domestic parent. It's, they're not really using those subsidiaries in the domestic business. But nevertheless, there's enough value being thrown out that they've passed the, the unitary threshold. The unitary uh, 
the unitary, or I'm sorry, the operational function analysis or test or core principle, whatever you want to call it, arises in the examples given in Allied Signal. As you said, you've got something which isn't really part of the rest of your business, but you're using it in that business to support it in a way beyond just a passive investment. And this, in this case, uh, that's how Mead was using Lexus. They were using it to support their, the value of their multiple multi-state business by manipulating, by making capital contributions, manipulating corporate structures, and re- bringing back those net tax net loss carry forwards, which increased the value, which increased their business activities. So this case actually is that is that falls within that paradigm. Also, it's not unlike um, uh, what. Any of the, like either of the hypotheticals in Allied Signal, not unlike the work, use of working cap, investment of working capital. So, um, yes, the, both the tests, while there are facts that overlap them, they can show their different relationships. But so you, but you would be asking us if we're going to go on that operational function to take two examples that were given in Allied Signal that are quite different from what's involved here. And to make that a doctrine when you recognize that we have never used that theory to hold for a state taxing authority in a contest with a multi-state enterprise. Uh, Your Honor, I don't think you have to create a separate doctrine. Again, I think these are these, these are both considered different ways of showing the, the intangible flow of value, the significant links between a business that give rise to constitutional apportionment. And whether they're considered separate analyses, corollaries, they've been described by some academics as corollaries of, the, of, the, of each other. Um, it's certainly, given this Court's uh, signals and allied signal, I think it's certainly um, appropriate where the facts arise to make the constitutional finding based on the operational function that an asset serves in a, in a, in a business. Can I ask this question? Does the record tell us whether other states have, have sought to tax the capital gain on this transaction? No, it does not, Your Honor. It as far not. as we know, Illinois is out on its I, own. <laughs> I don't know, Your I don't, I don't know your, the answer to that, Your Honor. I hope not. Um, in any event, not wager, however. Right? <laughs> uh, in, in any case, Your Honor, as you said, there, as I've said, there's two possible ways that. Uh, two different constitutional paths or theories that we can um, go down in this case to meet the con- the, the uh, to, that allows Illinois to apportion um, independent of the operational links. Mead can, can tax the gain on Lexus simply because Lexus conducted business in Illinois. A state may tax a non-resident's investment income based on its investment in a separate business, and that's exactly what Illinois was. That's an, another way to. Uh, to uphold the Illinois Appellate Court's decision. If Illinois, if, if Ohio is in fact taxing the whole um, gain at its full rate on the theory that this entire income should be allocated to Ohio, then you do have an element of double taxation, right? That's possible, Your Honor, but it's um, First, there's no, there is no there's no evidence that that, what, that Ohio did, in fact did that. But I think Mobile Oil should, the case should have disposed of that uh, that contention because this court rejected a similar argument that the mere possibility of taxation by a uh, domiciliary state foreclosed taxation by a state where the business was present. And I th- under Mobile Oil, when a resident state's claim and a, a source state's claim conflict, uh, 
this Court indicated that this, uh, sor- the, sor- the resident state's claim must yield to that of the source state. So there, there should be no uh, issue of multiple taxation in this case. Um, just to, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, just to go back to your question, the um, is page 11A of, of the PET app where the appellate court said Meade does not dispute that Lexus and Nexus had the requisite connection or Nexus with Illinois. I, I thought eight, I've been looking too. I thought 18A does say that they had $46 million of sales attributable to Lexus. And certainly there was, um, there was hundreds of millions of dollars of sales in Illinois. So that's really not an issue. In this case. No, only $46 million. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, in, 46, not I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In 1994, yes, that's correct. Um, the um, and, it, and again, there's both Meade and Lexus, as, as both Meade and Lexus had uh, adequate um, constitutional connection here, there's no uh, basis not to sustain. You're, 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 taxing, you're taxing Meade, not, not Nexus Lexus. Correct. That's correct. So what, what relevance is it that, that Nexus Lexus has? Business in Illinois. It's, it's I mean, that's fine if that's who you're taxing. Well, it's it's relevant if only if this court finds that there was no operational uh, relationship between Lexus and Meade. Then Lexus's presence in Illinois becomes relevant, because in that case, whether you look at this as a separate business conducted by Meade or whether it's even as a passive investment of Meade, Illinois can still tax it in the manner that it did. By, a port, by, in, by isolating the values of um, Lexus's that, that Lexus earned in Illinois. And that is I must say, I don't follow that. It seems to me what, what you can establish from the fact that it did a lot of business in Illinois is that you can tax it. And, and uh, but, but I don't but there, see there was no it to tax, right? There, there, a, there was, yes, correct. There was no it to tax. And under this Court's well-established case law, International Harvester, J.C. Penney, um, a state can tax a, 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 a non-resident on an investment in that state as long as the, the tax is pr- properly prorated to the amount of income that rose within that state. At the time of this sale of LexisNexis assets, it was only one taxpayer. It was Meade. That's correct, Your Honor. There was one taxpayer, and it was Meade. That was the only party that could have been taxed. That's correct. So here, in this case, Meade is taking an all-or-nothing approach to taxation. But this could, should uh, — this disregards the connections between Meade's electronic publishing business in Illinois, and the Court should decline to rule in their favor. Um, in fact, you, you, you have any case like that where, where — your ability to tax uh, a surviving corporation has to do with not whether the surviving corporation itself has sufficient contacts with the state, but whether some other corporation that has disappeared now but that merged into it had sufficient. It seems to me you have to establish connection with the taxpayer, not 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 with somebody from whom the taxpayer made some money. You have to you have to establish connection with the taxpayer's activities in the taxing state. That's the, that's the constitutional touchstone. So if Meade, whether Meade was running a business in Illinois or investing in Illinois or had a unitary business that operated in Illinois, those, that's the, that provides a sufficient that's, link. That's fine. So, so, and that provides the taxing, the, the ability for but the that work. isn't established by the mere fact that LexisNexis did business there. Ultimately, you have to come down to, uh, 
connecting it to mead either by your unitary business doctrine or by this uh, this functional doctrine that you're relying on. No, no, Your Honor. If you uh, under international harvester, I think that the court made it very clear that even a passive investment can be taxed by a state. If mead uh, mead can be taxed. Even if Lexus was a passive investor and Mead was only investing in Illinois, Illinois can still tax Mead on the value of its investment that arose in Illinois. And so Mead realized the gain. Mead is the taxpayer. Mead can be taxed as long as the, the tax is properly prorated to the Illinois presence, which it was in this case. But the proration, it seems to me, even under that theory, should have no, nothing to do with uh, the extent of Lexus in Illinois. Exactly. It has to do with the extent of Mead in Illinois. Of Mead. Well, no, you're wrong. It's — under the, then, then, under this Court's precedent, the, you're looking to the, store, the source state, the activity of the business that was conducted in the source state. Now, in this case, as a, it happened, that the, the amounts are fairly close to each other. So if there is any uh, question about it, there's no, you know, there's, there is no constitutional problem that arises out of that. But um, clearly, this, I mean, the, it's a settled precedent that a, a state can tax um, based on income, the income that arose in that state. And that's what happened here. Uh, indeed, to, to uh, accept um, Meade's contention would also would create a constitutional loophole that for income that a state's marketplace helped create, but which a state could then not recover. The Illinois court's decision permitting Illinois to tax a fraction of the gain should be affirmed if this court has an order. Can you tax me on stock that I, on stock that, that I own on companies that do business in Illinois? In the abstract, yes, you could, Your Honor. You know any state that tries to do it? No, Your Honor. But again, Your Honor. It's extraordinary. I don't know what, any tax that a state could possibly impose that no state has imposed. Your Honor, this is. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honor, this is. But, Your Honor, the international harvester is the, perf- is the precise fact pattern where this Court upheld a, a tax on, a, on, a, in, on, a, on investors, on the shareholders' investment in a state in which they were not present. So, um, but this, in this case, Mead had an independent tax presence also in Illinois. So that issue just doesn't arise in, that, in this case. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Ms. Brinkman, you have three minutes. I have four very quick points, Your Honor. Two go to this new, very breathtaking argument that the State is making based on LexisNexis' presence to the State. Concerning Illinois law, if you look in uh, Respondent's Brief in Opposition on page 12 at note 4, they cite the same Illinois law we do, trying to argue that we had waived arguments in the Brief in Op. So we're on pretty solid ground there, I think, at the cert stage they were agreeing with us on what that Illinois law meant. On the substance of it, I think Justice Scalia and Justice Kenny brought out the weaknesses. Their position would lead to taxes on all stock sales. Any state where an investment was doing business could then reach out and apportion the gain on that. And as far as international harvester and J.C. Penny, those were tax on the investment not the investor. And the dissent, that was a dispute, the dissent, the majority. It was the um, incident of the tax fell on the um, the investment that was doing business in the state. The state concedes, Your Honor, um, Justice Ginsburg, the distinction between Aston, um, the sale of asset and the sale of stocks that you were concerned about. On page 43, they concede, and it's, as I think, very well recognized through Mobile and Exxon and Woolworth, that, quote, apportionment has nothing to do with the form a business organization takes. 
Ms. Fin Ms. Brink, oh, you want Finally, I would just right. point out um, the question you um, asked. I think it was Justice Ginsburg about what Illinois would do with this. Interestingly, oh, in the return in the record in this case, at, um, it's not in the joint appendix, but it's um, at C-851. It's Exhibit 1 to the Stipulation of Facts. It indicates that interest in dividends allocable are allocable to Illinois if the commercial domicile is in Illinois. Ms. Ms. Brinkley. Illinois or Ohio, were you talking? This is the Illinois return. And the question was what Illinois would do. And they say, commercial domicile, we get your interest in dividends. Uh, Ms. Brinkman, on the, the waiver point, I'm looking at page 18A. It not only says that LexisNexis contributed $46 million from its presence in Illinois, it begins the sentence by saying, as the department notes, $46 million of Meade's income came from LexisNexis activities in Illinois. So that doesn't sound like a waiver of that point to me. At one point, after they got through the unitary business and operational functional analysis, there was an argument about whether it was grossly disproportionate. And that's where some of that um, information came. It was never in the context. So the issue is about, about the context in which what I regard as an important fact uh, was raised, whether it was raised in the context of an argument on unitary business or whether or not they went too far. But, but the, the stubborn fact is still there. There are facts, Your Honor, but the um, Illinois law is very clear. It's Rule 341 H7 and I, which applies to the appellee. If you don't raise a point in the appellate court, it is waived. That's an independent and adequate state ground, and it's a very breathtaking argument, as Justice Scalia pointed out, that also wasn't brought forth in the brief in opposition. Thank you, Your Counsel. Honor. The case is submitted.